You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Our scripture reading uh, this morning is found in uh, Acts chapter 17, and we read from verse uh, 16 uh, through to 34. If you're using the Church Bible, you'll find this on page uh, 1113. Uh, Before we read, let me try and just put this uh, in context. We are breaking into Paul's second missionary journey. He has left Silas and Timothy in Berea, uh, and where there has been some trouble, needless to say, and he has moved on uh, by himself to Athens. The plan was he would wait there for Silas and Timothy to join them, and then they would engage in mission in that city. Uh, But that's not quite uh, what happened. So we read in chapter 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, 
We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear more of you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Jim uh, Packer famously wrote of Christians, We are all under orders to devote ourselves to spreading the good news and to use all our ingenuity and enterprise to bring it to the notice of the whole world. The Christian must constantly be searching his conscience, asking himself if he is doing all that he might be doing in this field. Now, that's quite a challenge, and uh, it's just possible that there are a number of us who say, well, we actually struggle with the whole business of gospel communication. And if that's the case, I want to suggest that this passage uh, may provide us with some practical uh, help as uh, we look at three issues. First of all, uh, the motivation of the communicator. Secondly, the methodology of the communicator. And thirdly, the message of the gospel communicator. Let's look at the first of these, motivation. Uh, What is it then that should motivate us as we communicate the gospel? And of course, a variety of answers uh, can be given to that question. Uh, Obviously, uh, there is, first of all, obedience to the Great Commission before his ascension. Jesus said uh, to his disciples, uh, go into all the world and preach uh, the gospel. Uh, Jim Elliot, uh, 20th century missionary martyr, points out that this is not simply uh, an apostolic mandate, but it is a command to the whole church and to those who were uh, timid enough uh, to say, but uh, God hasn't called us to mission. Uh, Jim Elliot, who certainly wasn't known for pulling his punches, uh, said it's not a call to mission that you require, but a kick in the pants. Uh, So there is obedience to the Great Commission. Secondly, uh, we can be motivated by the love of Christ. Uh, Paul himself says elsewhere, does he not, the love of Christ constrains me to preach Uh, the gospel. Now, we mustn't simply think in terms of our love for Christ, but of His love for us as that which constrains us. Uh, C.T. Studd, the English cricketer, uh, turned his back and 
Uh, I suppose he turned it on both his reputation and on his fortune as he took uh, the gospel overseas. And regarding his motivation for doing all that he did, he said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, can any sacrifice be too great for me to make for him the constraining love of Christ? Thirdly, there is the fate of the unevangelized, and that has certainly motivated many. Uh, William Carey, for example, the father of the modern missionary movement, before taking the gospel to India, ran a little uh, classroom in his cobbler shop. And uh, it was impossible, it was said, for him to teach a geography lesson without pointing to large areas of the world and say they are lost. They are lost. They are lost with tears in his eyes. But when we turn to this passage, we find that there is a fourth motivator in view. Verse 16, we read of Paul, he was greatly distressed. Uh, This phrase employs a Greek word from which our term paroxysm uh, comes, a word used to describe uh, an epileptic seizure. It also means to irritate, to, to anger, to provoke. And Paul is provoked by the idolatry that suffocated or or drowned the city of uh, Athens. And his reaction to idolatry reflects God's own. In Isaiah 65 and 3, God, speaking of Israel's idolatry, describes them as an obstinate people who continually provoke me to my face. And so Paul was provoked in the cultural capital of the ancient world because he saw here is idolatry that is robbing God of the glory that is his due. It is setting Uh, creation above its creator. Uh, Idolatry is an intruder that usurps the rightful place of God. When cultural tourists came to Athens, they saw a city that was elevated with beauty and learning. In contrast, when Paul visited, he saw a city that was submerged in idolatry, and he was greatly distressed. I wonder this morning if we are perhaps uh, cultural tourists in the city of our birth or the city of our adoption. Uh, Dundee, you will know, narrowly missed being voted a cultural capital of Europe Uh, but it was recently named the UNESCO City of Design. It has been chosen to house part of the prestigious V&A collection. Uh, Dundee University was named as number one 
in the The Times Higher University Experience in 1912. And that's to say nothing of Dundee's reputation for medical research or computer game design. The, the list goes on and on and on. But is that all we see in our city? What would Paul have seen? Black Friday supermarket tug-of-wars, A&E departments swollen with drunkards. These are only the tip of the iceberg of a more sophisticated idolatry in our city. And it begs the question, are we provoked? Does a passion for God's glory spur us to action? Or are we content to be cultural tourists? Henry Martin, uh, surrounded by the culture-rich heritage of Iran, wrote to explain what made him stay in that country, far from friends and home. And I quote, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonored. And the question is this, is there a greater motivation for communicating the gospel than a passion for God's glory? That's what motivated uh, Paul uh, here As we move uh, on uh, now to the Areopagus, which is not a a place but a council, I suppose you could call them the religious police uh, in Athens. Uh, This isn't a formal trial as such, but it is a preliminary hearing. Uh, We want to say, we want to hear what you're saying, uh, these new ideas, you know. Uh, We need to uh, listen intently to what you have to say about these to see what we're going to do with you. That's, that's the, the kind of invitation that Paul is getting here. And as we consider how he approaches his response, Paul's methodology, I want to suggest that, first of all, we see him as a bridge builder. He wasn't a religious isolationist, insulating himself from the idolatrous culture of his day. He didn't found a religious sanctuary where Christians could withdraw into a kind of comfortable holy huddle. Uh, To have done so would have, uh, I suppose, indicated some kind of religious superiority. Uh, And that always erects a barrier uh, to communication. Instead, Paul builds bridges by engaging his hearers, first of all, by treating them with respect. It seems a simple thing, but he treats them with respect. He describes them in verse 22 as very religious. And while the term also carries the idea of uh, superstitious, Paul is not going out of his way to raise the hackles of his hearers but to put them at their ease. 
You see, his audience were the kind of people of whom he wrote in Romans 1 and verse 18, uh, those who had suppressed their knowledge of God so that their minds were darkened. Verse 30 of our passage, they were spiritually ignorant. And into that spiritual vacuum, idols had pressed themselves. God substitutes. And God's substitutes, of course, can take a whole variety of forms. Do you remember Jesus meeting with the woman at the well in Samaria? Uh, what were her idols, her God's substitutes? Well, she had a string of men, a string of disastrous relationships, idols that failed to address her inner spiritual restlessness. And Jesus, the supreme bridge builder, found a means of awakening her appetite for God. He speaks of living water, and he captures her attention immediately. In the same way here, Paul piqued the interest of his hearers by alluding to the statue they directed to the unknown God, verse 23. Now, he is not saying that for years they had unwittingly worshipped the true God, but what he is doing is he's identifying a major fault line in their own idolatrous world. I remember as a young architecture student, I visited the small Greek island of Delos, and it had been a popular place of pilgrimage in the ancient world. And it contains, it's a small island, but it contains uh, temples built to a myriad of gods from three continents. And what the pilgrims did, because they were somewhat disillusioned with their own gods, is they would come to this island and they would pray in one temple and move on to another and another and another and another. disillusioned with their own gods, convinced there was, had to be someone out there who would listen to them. Reaching out for an unknown God. You may remember that uh, Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 4, when the right time had fully come, God sent his Son. I wonder what we understand by the right time. It certainly is taken to refer to a set of ideal conditions for gospel proclamation. The comparative peace that existed in the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, uh, the Roman road system which facilitated the communication of the gospel. Uh, the use of uh, Greek, uh, the trade language of the day uh, for communication, a rich language. But there is one other important factor, and it was this growing disillusionment with both the Greek and the Roman gods. People were reaching out for spiritual reality. And Paul is saying here, I want to present to you a God that you do not yet know, the God who is there. We shouldn't underestimate the value of disillusionment 
for it does, I believe, provide a fertile context for gospel uh, proclamation. During the last 35 years, disillusionment with Islam in the land of Iran has seen something in the order of two million Muslims coming to faith in Christ. An incredible figure, disillusioned with Islam. So, don't underestimate the value of disillusionment. The next plank that we see in Paul's bridge building is his uh, cultural awareness. He clearly didn't adopt a one uh, shape fits all approach to communication. Sermons preached in Jewish synagogues were quite different from those preached to the non Jew who had no knowledge of or confidence in the Old Testament scriptures. And so his preaching in Athens took as its starting point creation, natural theology, rather than messianic fulfillment and biblical theology. Now, the kind of cross-cultural approach that he is uh, seen to be demonstrating here is something that he has uh, unpacked for us in his Corinthian epistle, 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 20 to 22, reads as follows. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To win the Jews, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, uh, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I engage in cultural accommodation. There is no suggestion that he compromises the content of the gospel, but the way in which it's packaged and the way in which he presents himself varies from situation to situation. Uh, we find here, for example, that he is happy to quote uh, Greek poets only if it served the purpose of the gospel, in the same way that some here uh, will, uh, from time to time, quote pop songs. I'm sure you're aware of that. It, it's the very same principle. Uh, I think I've told some of you before that one of my missionary heroes is Hudson Taylor, and when he went to China, uh, he found uh, the bulk of the missionary community on the coastal uh, part of, of China, uh, and they had their afternoon tea with their cucumber sandwiches at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, and they dressed for dinner and so on, uh, and he... Uh, he, he thought, they're not making much of an impact inland. And he scandalized the missionary community by dressing himself in Chinese clothes and wearing even one of the sort of cues, the pigtails that the Chinese wore. And doors opened up for him into inland China. To the Chinese, he became a Chinese. 
He was shedding his British culture. He wasn't compromising the gospel, simply shedding uh, his uh, British uh, culture. And again, that begs the question, what kind of cultural accommodation should we be engaging in today as we seek to share the gospel with fellow students or neighbors or workmates? How can we bridge uh, build bridges by making some kind of cultural accommodation. Uh, next, it is obvious that Paul had done his homework. He knew who his hearers were and what made them tick. We, we read that they were Epicureans and Stoics, the uh, prominent philosophers of the day. The Epicureans believed uh, the gods to be remote with no interest in or influence over human affairs. The gods just didn't care. And they encouraged their followers to enter a world of escapism, where pleasure was their chief pursuit. The Stoics were uh, pantheists who believed that it was their duty to live in harmony uh, with nature, enduring whatever pain came their way, the British stiff upper lip. Now, Paul engages with these categories. He knows the thinking process of these groups of men. He engages with them uh, and employs categories of speech that they understood And as he moves from being a bridge builder to operating as a Christian apologist, he enters the arena of philosophical debate. Now, there are critics uh, who, when they read what goes on here, uh, they, they say, oh, Paul has compromised the gospel. Read this uh, this speech, uh, it certainly falls short in many occasions. He doesn't mention the cross. Where's the cross? Where's the atonement? Where's the blood of Christ? It's not here. Uh, and some are as bold as to say, well, Paul recognized that he made a big mistake because later on he writes to the Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. Ah, they say, see, Paul is saying when I was in Athens I blew it, but since then when I came from Athens to Corinth I completely changed my approach. Uh, But in the Corinthian passage Paul is not referring to his sermon in Athens at all. Indeed, Luke's purpose in recording this sermon is to show the very value of apologetics where Paul is seen operating at two different levels. First, he is seen uh, to be dismantling uh, the religious ideas which were erroneous in Athens. Do you remember what he says in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5? David dealt with it some time back. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so Paul sits about in these verses exposing the logical inconsistency of his hearers. And he's saying, what you guys believe is just pure daft. It doesn't make sense. But secondly, Paul constructs 
a biblical view of the doctrine of God. He's tearing down some ideas, he's building up others. And so, in these verses, we find God presented as the creator of the universe, verse 24, the sustainer of life, verse 25, the sovereign ruler of the nations, verse 26 to the first part of verse 28, the father of all human beings, the last part of verse 28, and finally, the judge of the world. Now, we're not going to go through uh, these verses phrase by phrase. We'd be here all day. But as you read these verses, you may think, I'm no Paul. I can't dismantle unworthy caricatures of God and present the truth in such a persuasive manner. Well, can I suggest to you, that's why there are groups like uh, Solace uh, around Uh, That's why, as you'll uh, see shortly, there's a meeting at the end of the month here, God, Science, and Origins. Uh, These meetings uh, and the publications that Solus and others produce are there to help us to demonstrate that our faith is not unreasonable. We don't need to feel intimidated by the so-called brilliant minds of our age who believe that they can argue God out of existence. Uh, And perhaps, perhaps we should be making more use of these materials to prepare ourselves as we seek to communicate uh, with others. Thirdly, let's uh, look at Paul's message. Uh, And, of course, as I said, we're not going to go through uh, the whole of this phrase by phrase, but I do want to ask this question. What makes this message a gospel message? Uh, We know that Paul's audience loved to spend time, verse 21, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. But we have here much more than a discussion on comparative religion. There are many people today who are happy to talk about uh, their belief system versus your belief system and compare the two. That doesn't upset them at all. Authentic gospel communication requires personal application. Without application, we are merely involved in an exchange of religious ideas. The mind is engaged, but without application, the heart isn't involved and the will isn't challenged. It was said of Jonathan Edwards, the great North American theologian and preacher, uh, that all of his doctrine was application and all of his application was uh, doctrine. Well, he learned that from Paul. He learned it from Paul. For this is precisely what we find Paul doing here in verse 30. After having rehabilitated the doctrine of God, notice he calls upon his hearers to repent. Now, clearly, Luke does not provide us with the full text of Paul's sermon. Uh, You can read what uh, is is written here in less than two minutes, uh, and I doubt if Paul preached for only 
two minutes. You probably wish this guy preached for only two minutes. But Paul certainly didn't preach uh, for only two minutes. Uh, But I want to suggest that the reason for mentioning here the time of their ignorance now being past, verse 30, is that now a new age has been brought in by Christ, and the salvation which he brings carries with it the threat of judgment if it is refused. Notice what Paul has to say here about judgment. First of all, it is universal God is going to judge the world. Uh, No one can avoid uh, this. There are no get-out-of-jail-free cards lying around. It will also, we're told, it will also be a righteous judgment. Jesus, God's judge, will judge with justice. There's no place for favoritism or bribery, no miscarriages of judges of uh, justice, because here is a judge who has all of the facts at his uh, fingertips. Little wonder Paul calls upon his hearers to repent. He is not saying, it's time for you to change one belief system for another. You know, I've got better ideas than you. Just change your thinking. Repentance involves an inner change of heart and mind and an outward change of life. And it is, you will notice, at this point that there is a significant atmospheric change in Paul's audience. Why might that be? Luther tells us that prior to his conversion, the most displeasing word in his study of divinity was the word repent. It repelled him. It calls for a personal transformation of his sinful heart and life. But the call to repentance you will notice, is not the reason that is given for disrupting the meeting. When people are confronted with their need to repent, it is unusual for them to say, "Uh, that's just what I need to hear. Thanks very much. Often, what they're thinking is, I want you to keep your distance from my sinful heart but they're not going to say that, not often. Rather, they will direct attention away from their hearts to something out there. They want to move all that's going on from in here to out there. And so, in verse 32, Paul's mention of the resurrection is given for the rejection of his message, and certainly a bodily resurrection was something that was alien to the Greek understanding of the afterlife. But the question I want to ask is, to what extent did it become a handy peg on which to hang the rejection of Paul's message? Sneering at the resurrection is often another way of saying, keep your distance from my sinful heart this application is making me feel very, very uncomfortable. 
You will remember that a similar reaction is found in the heart of the Samaritan woman who was engaged by Jesus. After engaging in his cross-cultural communication and breaking all of the cultural taboos that Jesus broke, and after whetting her appetite for spiritual reality, he said to her, go call your husband. What was he doing? He was exposing her sinful heart and lifestyle. There was going to need to be a change, an inner change. She had gone through five husbands, and now she was staying with man number six. But how did she respond to the one who had engaged her so graciously and so effectively? Notice, and you can read the passage in John 4 later, she transfers the conversation from in here to out there. And she asks the question, where do you think we should worship? You Jews say Jerusalem, we say this mountain. Uh, let's have a good religious discussion out there, not in here. Well, we shouldn't be surprised when authentic Christian communication produces either upset or an attempt at deflection change the subject matter from in here to out there. What we should avoid, and sadly this is what some have done, is the emasculation of the gospel. The gospel is dumbed down. Oh, cultural bridges have been built, and time has been spent sharing beliefs. But there is a determination to stop short of any kind of personal application that might upset one's hearer. No mention of sin or judgment or repentance in the misguided belief that they will more successfully win their hearers to Jesus. But without repentance, none can come to Christ. It is an impossibility. And whatever else these individuals engage in, it is not authentic gospel communication. Now, detractors to Paul's approach in Athens claim that there was a pathetic response. But verse 34 makes it clear that some were converted. Others were sufficiently challenged to want to hear more. And it's a very real mistake to try and establish a straight line between the number of converts we have and the correctness of our message. For at the end of the day, it's God who gives the increase. Thankfully, the burden, the responsibility for fruit in this regard is God's and not ours. Our responsibility is to sow, is to speak of Jesus in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and to trust God to accomplish His purpose through that. Where then does our responsibility rest? Well, I would suggest in our motivation. What motivates us to communicate this message 
in our methodology? Are we learning to become bridge builders? Are we adding to our knowledge of apologetics? How best to answer this question or that question or this difficulty or that difficulty? In the content of the message that we present, a determined refusal to compromise the content of the gospel in an attempt to try and win a wider audience. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, as we still our hearts, before you this morning, we earnestly pray that you would give us such a passionate concern for your glory that we refuse to be cultural tourists but see in a whole variety of situations where you are being dishonored, where creation is being set above the Creator. Uh, May we be driven to action. Help us to, our Father, we pray, to be uh, able bridge builders. Help us to make the kind of cultural accommodation that is necessary to make the gospel meaningful to those who have no Christian tradition or understanding. And help us to, in our presentation of the gospel message, to determine that nothing will be allowed to uh, minimize the gospel, to dilute it in any way. And doing all of this, we leave to you the responsibility of giving the increase, of doing what only you can do in the hearts of men and women, in drawing them to yourself. For this we ask and pray of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.